passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 14. Paul writes, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we as your church are gathered here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I recognize that we have all experienced different things throughout the week, but praise God that we have died to our sins and been raised to new life in you. So be with us this morning, preach powerfully your word through Pastor Jeff, and may we leave here a changed people. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How are we doing? You guys ready to roll? Oh man, we got a hot passage this morning. I saw that Christmas choir slide come up and the gleam in some of your eyes that you saw the word Christmas. My word, heaven's sake. Have just a little quick announcement, extra announcement this morning. This week is the seventh year of my arrival in Idaho Falls. It's the seventh year anniversary. Since I took the job as senior pastor here, some of you clapping pretty slowly there, like, oh, seven more years, heaven's sake. Okay. Uh, Carrie and I just could not be happier to be here. We feel more connected to you and this congregation than we ever have before and I just want you to know that I plan on being here at least a couple more years. So, um, just joking. Uh, for many more years, we love you guys. We're so glad to be here. We're going to jump into this passage this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 6. I'll primarily be reading from the CSB uh, version that we read from today, that Ryan read from. Uh, the son of the emancipated slave, Solomon Northup, was born free where he lived in upstate New York. He was a skilled worker, an accomplished violinist, and he was a, a family man. In 1841, two con men offered him lucrative work playing fiddle in a circus that he, so he traveled uh, with them to Washington, D.C., where he was drugged, kidnapped, and subsequently enslaved in the Red River region of Louisiana, shipped off to Louisiana. For the next 12 years, Solomon Northup experienced inhumane treatment under various masters, slavers, especially under the cruel bondage of slaver Edwin Epps. But in January of 1853, Northup was finally released by northern allies who came to his rescue. They found out he was there, and they came to his rescue. And the basis of their case was very simply this. This man is not a slave. His legal status is free. He was born free, and he is not obligated to live in servitude to Edwin Epps or anyone else. Edwin Epps produced papers saying, I bought this person fair and square. And their response was, this man is not a slave. 
Legally, you can't own him. So in addition to, be, to enduring the endure, being an enduring condemnation of chattel bondage, the book, 12 Years a Slave, is a reminder that the institution of slavery and the subsequent Jim Crow laws were a moral cancer in our culture, epitomizing evil and injustice. And Solomon's story in that book, 12 Years a Slave, which now has famously become a movie. If you haven't seen it, please do watch it. It's a powerful movie. But get a tissue box for sure. Uh, in that American story, uh, fortunately, his story had a happy ending, and so has ours in this regard in America. Today, today, Paul means to tell us in the text as Christians that in Christ we are born again to breathe the fresh air of liberty from unrighteousness. It is for freedom, Paul says, that Christ has set you free. And we are no longer to be enslaved to sin, that most awful, merciless taskmaster. No, in order for the believer to live in this new reality, Paul says we have to grasp, we have to take hold of four things in this text today in Romans 6. Number one, we covered this last week, we must comprehend the truth about ourselves, this new reality, that the Christian lives in a new reality. The believer is emancipated from sin's tyranny and made alive in Christ. Now, these are what we call uh, grammatically the indicatives. The indicatives are just statements of fact. This is indicative of your life. This is what the Bible says is true, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not. This is what the Bible says is true about the New Testament Christian. As we learned last week, we were crucified and buried and made alive with Christ in baptism. We go down in this watery grave and we come up alive in Christ. That's Romans 1, verse 5 verses and verse 10. And then we learn that we are no longer, sin no longer has power to enslave us to obey evil desires. We learn that from verse 6, verse 17, 18, and 20. He says, you were slaves to sin, having died to sin. And then we learn we are no longer under the dispensation of the law, but under this new administration of grace. This is what he says in chapter 6, verse 14. And John echoes this in his gospel in John 1, 17. He says, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So one dispensation was the administration of the law, which was powerless against sin, and the other is grace, which now saves you from sin's penalty and now also saves you from its power to dominate your life. That's what chapter 6 is about. And so we must have a firm grasp. We must comprehend this truth. The Christian must be committed to this truth. That as believers in Christ, we live in a new reality. We have union with Christ who was crucified, died, buried, and raised to life forevermore. And the Bible says, Paul says right here, we were baptized into Christ, crucified and buried with Christ, and alive to God in Christ. Amen. We are living saints, walking and talking righteous children of God. Now, that was last week, so if you missed that message, you can go back on the web, and you can listen to that on our sermons page on our website. Now, Paul goes on to tell us that in addition to knowing what is true about the Christian life, these are the indicatives. We have been set free from sin slavery. Number two, we must count it true. Well, that is true, but now we must count it true. He says in verse 11, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Christian must now count it as true for himself or herself. We must consider it to be factual. Listen, so long as we just think that this statement, being freed from sin, is just theory or abstractness or just theology, or that it's true maybe for some super Christian, some super disciple who's achieved some level of discipleship, so long as we think like that, we will not think that it is true for us. Romans 8.13, Paul tells us that if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, and the King James, for those of you who have the King James, that says mortify, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will experience life, he says. You will have life. And so he introduces what is called the Christian doctrine of the mortification of the flesh. What is the mortification of the flesh? It is assaulting and killing and doing everything we can, bringing all the resources of God against the sinful nature to bring our flesh into subjection to Christ. Colossians 3, 3 through 6. He says, for you died. You already died in Christ. And look at this. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you think of your life being hidden with Christ in God? He says, when Christ who is your life, when He appears, then you also will appear with Him in glorious resurrection. Therefore, he says in verse 5, Colossians 3, 5, he says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things, and you once lived in them, but now, he says, you do not. You do not live this way. There is a town in Norway where no one is allowed to die. Wouldn't you like to live in that town? (laughs) Susan Keogh, with the Irish son, wrote, Longburen, Norway, uh, a tranquil town in the middle of nowhere, is so remote that residents are not allowed to die there. Dying has been outlawed since 1950. Here's why. When it was discovered that bodies in the local cemetery were not decomposing because of the deep frost and chilly temperatures. The island's climate is so arctic, she says, that in the 2000s, scientists tested corpses buried there who succumbed, listen to this, to the previous pandemic in 1917. They tested them for the influenza virus, and to their amazement, they retrieved all kinds of live samples of the virus still alive. Residents had been living among the deadly virus for decades without even realizing it, so the graveyard is no longer in business. It's not taking any new customers. You're not allowed to die there. If If you're terminally ill, you literally have to be shipped to the mainland to die and be buried. And what Paul is referring to here is what we call the mortification of the flesh. We may know and understand that in Christ we have been crucified and buried and made alive and dead to sin. But in order for the mortification process of our old nature to take effect in sanctification, we must count or consider ourselves dead to sin. We must reckon that we are. This is true for us. And we must allow the process of sanctification, which is being made holy, which is being set apart to God, to put to death the misdeeds of the body, Paul says. We must allow ourselves to die to sinful patterns. And Paul says, in addition to comprehending the truth and counting it to be true for our lives, for us personally, number three, we must conform our lives to the truth. 
We must conform our lives to the truth. Verses 12 through 13, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not allow any or offer any of your parts to sin as weapons for righteousness, unrighteousness. But as those who are alive back from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons of righteousness. What is he telling us here? We're in a war. The Christian life is war. And knowing what is true and considering it true for me, we must now comport our lives to it. Whereas verses 1 through 10 give us the indicatives of the Christian life, these are the things that are true. Verses 12 through 11 tell us the imperatives. This is what ought to characterize our lives. And it challenges us to active resistance against sin and unrighteousness, offering the parts of our body, ourselves, he says, offer yourselves the parts of the members of your body to righteousness, not unrighteousness, because we're in this war. And it's a constant battle, isn't it? Well, if all this is true, then how is it even possible for a sinner or a saved person to even be tempted with sin? Were you tempted with sin this last week? Of course you were. So was I. So how is it possible for a believer to even be tempted with sin? And why wouldn't it just be automatic that every temptation that comes your way, you just overcome it automatically? Because it's a war, he says. It's a matter of constantly offering ourselves to God, and we must understand what the kingdom of God is, and this is where we understand God's kingdom reign in the world. The nature of His kingdom reign is that it is already, but not yet. Say that back in your mind. God's kingdom reign is already, but not yet. It's already been inaugurated. It's already been announced in the gospel. It's already taken effect wherever the Holy Spirit of God has been poured out, absolutely, but it's also awaiting a final consummation, and so is the resurrection of your body. Ephesians 1.22, Paul says, and he, God, subjected everything under his, Jesus' feet, appointing him as head over all things for the church, or everything for the church. Christ, the, the consistent witness of the New Testament is Christ has already been ascended and exalted to his throne. Christ is exalted. That's what we're here to do today. We're here as a little outpost of the kingdom of God to proclaim and declare His exaltation. But Hebrews 2.8 says, For in subjecting everything to Him, He, that is God, left nothing that is not subject to Him, that is Christ. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to Him, yet His inaugurated kingdom awaits a final consummation and a final full realization. Right now, we don't see everything subjected to Him, either in the world or in ourselves. Is everything in you subjected to Christ yet? Until the day you die, you will be fighting that fight. Until the day you die, you will be waging war against the temptations of the flesh. This is the already but not yet kingdom. So we must understand that Christ's kingdom, the domain of His sovereign reign of grace, that's what the kingdom is. It's the domain of His sovereign reign and grace has already come. It's been inaugurated. It's been announced in the gospel, and it is present in the heart and the life of every person who can makes the confession, as Daniel said, Jesus is Lord. And every church that gathers around His Word, this Word which symbolizes His presence among us, And this table, the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, which symbolizes His covenant with His new people, and the water, 
which symbolizes his grave now defeated and forever empty. Amen. So how does Christ do this? How do we get help? How do you get help? Hebrews 2 tells us. I want to read you these passages, powerful passages. Verses 14 through 18, he says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He became a human being. So that through the death, through death, his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. Are you afraid of dying today? Even Christians sometimes are afraid of dying. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. He's our high priest. He's the one who represents us as a human race, believing human race before God to make atonement for the sins of the people. He's the one who presents his own sacrifice before God as an effective atonement once and for all for the people. Verse 18, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. This is the doctrine of divine empathy. Christ is able to help us. Christ empathizes with us in our humanity, in our fallenness, knowing that we're struggling. So having defeated sin, sin, death, and hell, Jesus lives to make intercession now for His followers who daily fight the good fight against sin, death, and hell. And we are actively engaged in this war for control of our lives. And the believer has an advocate with the Father, our high priest, who represents us, who resupplies us in the trenches of warfare, and who reforms us, remaking us in the image of His Holy Son. So here's the point. We need some help. Do you need help this morning? As we conform our lives to this settled belief that it is true, it's true not just generically, not out there, not for someone else, it's true for me, it's true for us. The Spirit transforms us by fits and starts from glory to glory, from one step to another, one day at a time. So Paul says every Christian who is saved by grace through faith must comprehend, we must grasp this truth that we have been emancipated from sin. And we must consider that true for us, for ourselves, and we must conform our lives to the pattern of sound teaching, of the Bible, of Scripture. And the God who gave us His Son to die for us, His Son now intercedes for us to help us in our weaknesses. That's good news. Number four, we must contemplate the alternatives. Well, if you ever get tempted to turn away, if you ever get tempted to go in a different direction than God's Word, Paul says, just think about the alternatives here. Compare them briefly. Contrast them. He says in verses 20 through 23, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free regarding righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, indentured to God, in servitude to God, you have new fruit. You have your fruit, which results in sanctification, being made holy, being set apart to God. And the outcome of this is projecting on into eternal life, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as believers, we must reflect on the life that sin produced. What did it produce? It produced death. And reflecting on the fruit produced by righteous living, by His righteousness, which is 
life. And he says, you were free regarding righteousness. Were you? Well, in a sense, you and I were. You were free to live according to your own law. You were free to live according to whatever you thought was right in your own eyes. But were you really free? No, because all that did, he says, is produce in you death. And this is what I see in our culture today. What has has our casting off God's authority produced in society, in culture? What has it produced? All you have to do is look at what it's produced. What is the fruit of it? And the first one that I see of a culture that declares itself emancipated from God and His Word and His authority is a decline in our national mental and soul health through wanton hedonism. Dr. Anna Lepke, a Stanford University uh, professor, studies the problem of addiction and what, what it does to the brain and the body. She found that the normal functioning of the human brain to process pleasurable experiences, which your brain was designed to process pleasure, right? She, she finds that that normal process now, that is, you eat a piece of chocolate and you feel good, which is why I eat so much chocolate. I love chocolate. Or you get some good news. That feels good. You play a video game. For those of you who are into games, that just gives you a little dopamine hit. You feel good. She says that the normal functioning of the human brain to process these kinds of pleasurable experiences is being disrupted in our society due to the repeated exposure to pleasure and the avoidance of necessary pain through self-discipline, what Paul calls dying to the self. And when you have a culture where there is this universal access to highly potent, massive quantities of dopamine, just one hit after another, we're bombarding our dopamine pathways, she says, with way more pleasurable experiences that our biology, our actual faculties can process, leading to a sharp increase in all these problems like insomnia and dysphoria and irritability and chronic anxiety and cravings we can't shut off and severe depression and even suicide. There's a massive uptick in suicides because of this, she says. We're literally killing ourselves with pleasure. We're making ourselves miserable through hedonism and pleasure-seeking. And she says the richest, quote, the richest countries in the world have the highest incidence of suicide, anxiety, depression, and deteriorating health. How can that be? We have everything, don't we? How can this be? Our brains were designed by God for moderation and to live in a world of seasonal deprivation. And then social media just totally, you pile social media on top of this and it just exacerbates the problem, doesn't it? In a hyper-prosperity, low self-discipline age where we were made for seasons of deprivation and a few embodied intimate relationships, and now we just have everything all the time, and then we replace intimacy with masses of disembodied curated profiles that we call friends of people curating their profiles and showing us their best life. And then we're constantly envious and jealous, wondering why our lives don't look that good. This is why I have to say, particularly for those of you who are younger and you're, you're going off to college, listen, stay in the church. I tell my boys this all the time. I'm glad you're working hard, but listen, get back in the church. You and I need to plant our lives and our, our friendships right here in the fellowship of God. The next effect I see of people declaring themselves emancipated from God's Word and His authority and the reign of His His generous grace is a sharp decline in the moral fabric of our society through dehumanization. 
Well, if God says people are image bearers, and He, he says in Genesis 1, 26 and 1, 27 and 1, 28 that He made people, human beings made in His image, male and female, He made them in His image. If that's what God says a human being is, and now we have in our culture the constant, unabating dehumanization of human beings. We have a generation that has been literally repeatedly lied to and indoctrinated that a human identity is fluid, that it's malleable, that it's whatever, you can be whatever you think you are. My daughter has kids in school today. God bless them. I pray for them all the time. She has kids in school today who identify as kittens. And I said, well, what do you say to those friends? She's like, you ain't no kitten. She's like, what? And so we have this indoctrination in our culture today that human identity is fluid, that it's changeable, it's whatever we want it to be, such that biological, biological men can claim to be women in some sense, even though they never define what a woman is. And that a child can walk into the Boston's Children's Hospital, a child, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old can walk into the Boston Children's Hospital or any number of transition clinics, claim to be a male trapped in a female body and walk out with a double mastectomy and a life prescription for testosterone hormones, permanently sterilizing that young girl, making it impossible for her to detransition later when she wants to detransition. And masses of girls now are trying to detransition, and they can't. And the sharp increase of these desires and these YouTube videos of these little girls, of these women who were little girls and now they can't have babies and they want to have families. The lawsuits are coming, folks. That'll stop when the, law, when the litigious culture accelerates and kicks into high gear. And now in their early 20s, they realize they were just confused. All they needed was wise counsel, not gender-affirming surgery. And now that industry is bracing for a flood of lawsuits, and it's well-deserved. Where do the repentant turn? Where do they go? Because the culture has turned them away and dealt harshly and brutally with them and killed them and brought death into their life because of sin. Where do they go? Well, they've also been told that you hate them because you're a Christian. You don't hate them. Does anybody help hate a trans person here this morning? If you do, get out. This is not the church for you. Because we're a grace place. We speak the truth in love. And so where do those who want to repent and want to come back to the fold and want to come back into God's family, where do they go? They come here to Christ Community Church because we will tell them the truth and we will love them and we will show them the grace and the love and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we will do. Our so-called emancipation from God and His righteousness has also led to the fact that we've aborted an entire generation of precious little babies. Does this break your heart? A cold-hearted, brutal, merciless, godless generation snuffing out precious life like it's nothing, like it is nothing as a method of birth control. 
while nations like China and Russia and Germany are facing, quite literally facing, a population collapse. You think they have a lot of people there? They don't. They are well past their sell-by date. They cannot replace the people who are retiring and dying. Their economies are going to die. This is not how a society flourishes. A society doesn't flourish by snuffing out precious human life to the tune of 62 million children, or in China's case, 500 million children. Something in your heart has to tell you that is wrong. That is wrong. That's death. Bible-believing churches are now persecuted openly and brazenly in the public square. Did you see last week Meet the Press hosted by Chuck Todd? Did anybody watch their expose on pastor, our brother in the Lord, Doug Wilson and his church in Moscow, Idaho? They were trying to do an expose. I sent it to all the pastors. We discussed it at our pastor's meeting last Monday. They weren't going to Tim Keller's church in New York City in woke New York City or some crazy church, uh, you know, uh, uh, culture like Los Angeles. They weren't doing that. They came to Moscow, Idaho, and they did an expose on our brother, Douglas Wilson, who is a Bible-believing evangelical Christian who's just trying to preach the gospel in his community. And they made him look like a crazy crackpot cultists while they were interviewing Unitarian pastors who were actually cultists. And when they came back to the panel several times, they used the word cult leader in reference to our brother, Doug Wilson, who is just preaching the gospel. He's a little quirky, okay? He is. The right to the freedom of expression in religious beliefs stops the cultural majority from imposing their beliefs upon us. There are 350,000 congregations that operate Christian schools, pregnancy resource centers, soup kitchens, drug addiction programs, homeless shelters, counseling services, adoption agencies, and they are all feeling a sharp uptick and increase in pressure to conform to the cultural story, which is false. And the cultural story is the individual now is the decisive arbiter of all that is true for them. That's not true. You and I will answer and be subject to a transcendent authority. And God has given us that word right here to live by it. And so here's what Paul asked. Paul just asked a simple question. The question is this. So what fruit was produced then from the things you're now ashamed of? What did, this, what did all this produce? Following the pattern of the teaching of the world, what has it produced in our culture? Has it produced godliness and righteousness? Are people happier? Are they more unified? Is there less factionalism in our culture? Are people less depressed? No, it didn't produce any of that. It produced death. He says the outcome of those things is death. And then he says in verse 22, he says, But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, that is indentured in service now to the way of righteousness, which brings life. You have new fruit. You have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, those are the two choices before us today. The two choices before us today is death or life. You can have either one, but you can't have both. And what he says to the Christian is, listen, your choice is life. Because you have died in Christ in baptism, you have been raised to life with him. And everything that is going haywire in our society, listen, the bill is coming due. It's coming due. And the price is death. But the gift of God, hallelujah, in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, my friends, is our appeal today to you is come to life. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to the God who made you and gave you your purpose and defines you. Be reconciled to the God who loved you and gave himself to die for you in your sins. And now invites you to the abundance of resurrection life in place of your death. Will you pray with me? I invite the worship team, who is one. <laughs> Daniel to come back up today. Father God, as a church, we repent of our sins. We repent of not loving and caring for the people who've just been tossed out by this cruel and brutal and heartless world who've just been dealt with harshly and just been indoctrinated into believing crazy, kooky, ungodly things. And God, we, as a church, we, we choose to speak the truth in love, to be people of grace and truth, to extend the gracious, compassionate, loving hand of Christ to those who are lost for eternity. And God, would you make us that kind of people? a grace place who fearlessly preaches your word and loves the people who are repentant and loves the people who are suffering under a weight of guilt and shame and who want to leave it and they don't know where to turn. God, would you help us do our best to love them back to life? God, we thank you that it, it is a fact that you have buried us with baptism in Christ and raised us to life with Christ. And God, we thank you that having died to sin, we count this now as true for us. We believers are dead to sin. And we choose to conform with everything that we are, with everything that we have. We choose to conform our lives to the pattern of this teaching, which is godliness and righteousness and leads to the human flourishing you intended for us. And God, if we are ever tempted to walk away, ever tempted to follow the path of the world, we are reminded of the alternatives. The alternative is not good. And so God, today we thank you for saving us. And as a church this morning, Lord, we ask you to save this generation. We ask you to save them from death, to save them from the cruel and the heartless, to save them from the people who actually do hate them and think nothing of them. Save them to the community of love and grace and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Can we all say amen?